Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon, doing a double duty today for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The French presidential debate pitted a right-wing Marine Le Pen against a globalist Emmanuel Macron at a time when inflation is soaring across Europe. Additionally, Jeremy Corbyn said that he would like to see organizations such as NATO disbanded. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas. He's an author and historian. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Very interesting stuff. You know, um, the debate in 2017, I do recall that and I covered that. And uh, Marine Le Pen didn't do well. She crashed and burned and she ended up getting blown out. It appears that um, she was much better prepared. What are your thoughts on the recent debate and where we are now with the French presidential race? Well, the problem from the point of view of progressive forces with regard to this presidential race are the obvious weaknesses of President Macron, the so-called candidate or president for the rich, a man who is described as centrist but could easily be described as center-right. As we've discussed on this program before, to a certain extent, uh, Madame Le Pen is to his left on pocketbook issues. She's to his left with regard to the war, insofar as she's been much more critical of NATO, that is to say the U.S.-dominated North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, Mr. Macron is, has not carried through on his rhetoric concerning seeing NATO as brain-dead and pledging that he will pursue the strategic autonomy uh, of France within the context of imperialism, but I think that both he and Madame Le Pen face the problem that the ultimate guarantor for world imperialism uh, is U.S. imperialism, and you see that particularly playing out in Africa, where even if Madame Le Pen is able to pull an upset and emerge triumphant on this Sunday, I seriously doubt if she'll be able to break the stranglehold that the French 1% have over the economies of certain uh, West African nations in particular. In fact, uh, if you look at your map and you look at history, you will quickly arrive at the conclusion that about half of Africa was under the French flag at one time or another. And uh, her rhetoric to the Notwithstanding, I don't see Madame Le Pen basically uh, breaking uh, with the Franco-Freak ethos that has dominated French policy. That is to say, uh, Africa is being a kind of French neo-colony. However, I'm hoping that if the polls happen to be correct, and they suggest that Mr. Macron will prevail, I'm hoping that he and the class that he represents will get the message that the reason why the race was closer this time as opposed to 2017 is because of French warmongering, because of French not backing out of NATO, uh, because of 
France are not carrying through on Mr. Macron's pledges and promises. Uh, that is my hope. We shall see what happens on Sunday. Yeah, and uh, what are your thoughts on how the um, the rest of the, the you know the Mario Draghi's and the uh, the um, uh, uh, Olaf Schultz's of the world view this you know outcome? I would suspect that even if Marine Le Pen that if she loses, which the the safe bet probably, if you're betting your money, would be that she loses in a fairly close race, closer than normal. Last time she got blown out, but she, if she comes close, and we're probably looking in the months ahead at the European economy getting considerably worse, and it's already considerably worse in a lot of places other than France. How they will view this outcome and how they will view the the tide changing, shall we say, in Europe. And and will it affect their policies or will they just keep doing what they're doing? Well, Olaf Schultz's popularity ratings are headed southward, as you probably know. I dare say that this has something to do with his hawkish posture on the war. In fact, a prominent uh, association of French employers, which was joined, excuse me, German employers, which was joined by a prominent association of German unions, uh, both raised serious doubts about this idea of boycotting uh, Russian energy sources. They think it could be damaging to the German economy. And I think that uh, Mario Draghi, the leader of Italy, has to tread carefully as well, because if you look at Italy, uh, you will quickly detect that there has been a historic association uh, with Russia going back to the days of the Soviet Union. It's no accident that one of the uh, major uh, auto plants in the then Soviet Union uh, was named after the Italian communist leader, Togliatti. And so Mr. Draghi also has to tread carefully if he wants to be in step with his populace. But I think that Rome in particular should be concerned about the fact that with this rush to boycott Russian energy sources, the Western European nations may be leaping from the frying pan into the fire, because that basically will mean that they will have to deal with Algeria with regard to natural gas, uh, which is not above playing hardball. And in fact, as I've mentioned before, has basically uh, tried to manipulate Spain against Italy uh, for its natural gas resources, for Algeria's natural gas resources, which in many ways is a turnabout from the way imperialism is supposed to work, where they're supposed to be manipulating African countries, not vice versa. But I think that this really uh, bespeaks how the think tanks and the strategists of the Pentagon did not really think through the consequences of NATO creeping ever closer to the border with Russia. They seemingly did not have a plan for Russia striking back, which may only expose and reveal that NATO is, is a kind of confidence game. It's a, a way to pour state treasuries into the pockets of the U.S. military-industrial complex and in some ways, they're only willing and ready for war with countries like Libya or the former Yugoslavia. They were not ready for conflict with a peer nation, militarily speaking of Russia. 
And so now they're in this very curious position. Uh, if they boycott uh, Russian palladium, which is necessary for the green economy, with the catalytic converters on cars, which, are, by the way, are being ripped off steadily uh, in U.S. parking lots because they're so valuable. But if they boycott Russian palladium, they have to deal with South African palladium. If they boycott uh, Russian titanium, which is necessary for building advanced aircraft, they have to deal with South African titanium. If they boycott Russian uranium, uh, necessary for French nuclear plants, they have to deal with Namibian or Nigerian Ukrainian uranium. And so it doesn't appear as if uh, NATO and the United States, the puppet master in NATO, were really ready for the manifold, manifest consequences of their bellicosity. And it seems as if uh, many of the ordinary citizens in the NATO countries will have to pay the price. And in that regard, I should mention that just today, Mr. Biden has pledged to send hundreds of millions of dollars more in armaments into Ukraine. At the same time, one of the most startling stories in the press this week was in the New York Times, where they reported that black men in particular are dying on the streets of Los Angeles. I'm talking about unhoused, unsheltered, quote, homeless, unquote, black men at an alarming rate. And so here you have the spectacle of what should be a domestic national emergency is being overlooked and swept under the rug in this rush to create a new Afghanistan in the heart of Europe which not only, from the point of view of U.S. imperialism, uh, helps to weaken the peer competitors, speaking of Russia, which in turn, in their estimation, will weaken China's firewall, because China, of course, is the ultimate target, and at the same time, make the European Union more dependent upon Washington. Uh, This is the rather Machiavellian plot that's unfolding, and part of the collateral damage, it seems to be, seems to me, is this spectacle, this horror of black homeless men dying like flies in the streets of Los Angeles. Former labor MP Jeremy Corbyn, former labor leader, actually said enough, some pretty interesting things. He said, I want to see a world where we start to ultimately disband all military alliances. He says, what's best for the way of bringing about peace of the future? He asked the question, do military alliances bring peace or do they actually encourage each other and build up to a greater danger? What are your thoughts? I think there's a lot you can think. What are your thoughts on Jeremy Corbyn coming forth saying that? Well, Jeremy Corbyn, as I'm sure your audience remembers, ran against Boris Johnson. He did not prevail in his race to be British prime minister. Uh, But The fact that he was put in that position bespeaks the kind of prominence that he still exerts in U.K. politics, despite a concerted effort to destabilize him by pointing to his pro-Palestinian positions as supposedly being evidentiary of an alleged anti-Jewish fervor. But certainly, Mr. Corbyn's comments need to be taken quite seriously. Because, as noted, uh, NATO is a loaded weapon, and that makes it all the more dangerous because it's a loaded weapon 
uh, pointing at a nation, Russia, which just the other day announced the unveiling of yet another version of an intercontinental ballistic missile, which, of course, could reach these shores quite easily. And so with NATO not only encouraging Ukrainian belligerence, but also doing the same with regard to Finland and Sweden, which supposedly are now considering membership in the North Atlantic Organization, uh, this suggests and this points to the unavoidable point that NATO is a serious, clear, and present danger to international peace and security that should have gone out of business in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, because supposedly that was the reason for its being, somehow to bring the Soviet Union to heel. But it motored on, <laughs> motored on in Libya, overthrowing Gaddafi in 2011, uh, motored on in Afghanistan before it was ignominiously ousted in August 2021, and then in the 1990s, motoring on in the former Yugoslavia, uh, bombing Belgrade and Serbia uh, into a kind of rubble. So certainly uh, NATO has lived past its sell-by date and needs to be tossed into the dung heap of history. Yes, uh, that, certainly uh, I would agree with you on that. And what's interesting is where he says, you know, I would want to see all, the ultimately disband all military alliances other than NATO. I can't think of a whole lot of big military alliances around the world that like actually have names that are formal. So I think he's it's pretty uh, obvious and pointed as to where the direction that Jeremy Corbyn is going. Thank you very much. Dr. Gerald Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston, Texas. He's an author and historian. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Multiple indicators are flashing red, indicating that a recession may be in the immediate future for the United States. Also, Europe is considering blocking Russian gas and oil, which would amount to economic suicide. And we discuss how the IMF loans force austerity on crisis-ravaged nations. Joining us now, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Well, 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 there's an article in Forex that says the inflation monster is forecasting a recession. Many investors used to buying the dip are confused as to why rallies from the dip lows keep fizzling out with stocks once more resuming a trend to fresh lows, despite many, if not most, stocks now trading over 50 percent of their highs. Uh, what are your thoughts about the thought the, the um, you know, the um, and, and what's the other thing we always talk about? The inverted yield curve. I've been hearing about that for a month now. Uh, what about all of these indicators? Are we heading for recession? Well, the inverted yield curve is certainly uh, a a reliable, or at least it has been in the past, indicator of a recession coming uh, nine months to a year after that event happens. Uh, this particular article is 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 talking a lot about what's going on on Wall Street in terms of inflation, and uh, I, I think certainly those who do that trading uh, are, are seeing signs 
that the economy, that the expectation in the economy is that it's not going to be robust, that it's in fact going to downturn. And, and, and uh, that's probably a, a fairly good indicator of, of how Wall Street will be affected. Uh, what the article misses uh, is uh, the effect, of course, on ordinary people of this inflation leading to recession. We've been talking about the idea of stagflation uh, here for a while. That is uh, still having inflation, even in spite of what the, um, the the Federal Reserve might do in inc- increasing interest rates to try to bring inflation down. But but doing so, uh, with the Fed doing that, also has an effect on slowing down the economy. And when you're slowing down an economy uh, that is um, has inflation because the supply is not sufficient to to uh, handle demand. All you can do with uh, increasing the interest rates is bring demand down to supply. In other words, bring demand down to recession level. And uh, that's uh, where I think the Fed is heading uh, because they're, they're promising or they're, they're planning to increase interest rates at least six more times this year. I think that will be not only too much, it's actually the wrong policy. What, what we need to do is to try to increase supply instead of trying to decrease demand. You know, the other part of it, too, I think, is the effect of these sanctions as the, you know, the United States, um, uh, after the beginning of, of the Ukraine crisis, you know, really kind of started, the uh, the Biden administration decided that they were going to basically start an economic war with a barrage of sanctions against Russia. But it certainly appears, particularly in Europe, and I think Europe's where we see it first, that these things are having major blowback, that inflation is going and the, and the cost of energy is, is is getting at really out of control in Europe, that there are other issues forthcoming that we really don't even know what they're going to be yet, that this is a very, very economically dangerous policy that we have, and that recession and inflation could really go bad. This could really go bad. And I don't know, you know, what, your thoughts on all of that? Well, yeah, Europe Europe is already showing signs of of a pullback, a slowdown in its economy. Now, you know, there are there's pressure from the U.S. on European countries to actually join the sanctioning of oil and gas against Russia. Now, um, um, European countries uh, get about 25 percent of their oil and gas from Russia, and it's unequally distributed. There are some some countries like Slovakia that import almost 100 percent of its oil and gas from from Russia. If the EU were to join the uh, the oil and gas sanctions against Russia, uh, the economy would be devastated. Uh, The German unions and German companies are against uh, sanctioning oil and gas because they understand that this would lead to a recession. Again, you have a slowdown in supply, uh, which would would, uh, increase inflation and uh, lead to recession in Europe. That that recession in Europe is going to come to to the U.S. along with the inflation. And so, uh, any anything that's going to happen in Europe, which is a major trading partner, European countries' major trading partner with the U.S., is going to reflect on the, on the U.S. economy. And so, uh, you know, we we have inflation uh, coming from the recovery from the pandemic that was expected. We didn't expect inflation from supply chain, but it's here and it's actually going to get worse as as China is, again, addressing its COVID surge. 
uh, and now the Fed is increasing interest rates and you're sanctioning oil and gas. These are This is absolutely a perfect storm for increased inflation and also for recession. So Wall Street, I think, is more worried about the recession than they are worried about the inflation. But but still, those things are, are going hand in hand in this period. The other thing that I, I want to ask you about, one of the I've been reading about the r- unintended consequences of the sanctions in Canada and other countries. And one of the things that I was reading about was, let's say you can't buy commodity X in Russia. That means you got to buy it from South Africa or, or Canada, wherever. But with these in, the increased um, demand, Canada, South Africa, Russia, whatever, now does not have the infrastructure to produce and transport and export these things that people need in the volumes that they were getting it for, from Russia. So the price goes through the roof and their supply chain locks up. And now you have, again, just a, a, a disaster after disaster. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, in addition to, to that flow, that, that turn down and flow of, of kind of regular commodities, we're talking about food and oil and or cooking oil and those kind of things. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the U.S. in trying to, to pressure the EU countries to, to cut off oil and gas from Russia are, are indicating that they're going to supply the shortfall. That means that oil and gas that would go into the American market is going to be transported over to Europe. Now, you, those, those supply facilities have to be built, so this is not going to be immediate. But, but if, you're, if you're producing oil and gas here that you're sending to Europe, that increases the price of oil and gas here. And, and, and so that inflation is, is going to be compounded, not just by the, um, the, the shortfall in Russia, uh, of Russian gas into Europe, but also because of the increased price that that U.S. manufacturers of oil and gas will will charge Europe, and then also because of the, the loss of supply here, and and so yeah, there are you know this is a system, an economic trading system, and this system is very tightly coupled, and if you have a downturn in one area uh, of the world, you have a downturn in other areas of the world. Uh, one some of the projections is that these sanctions are going to hurt Europe. Uh, much more than they're going to hurt Russia. And uh, so part of the blowback is whether or not European citizens will stand for their government uh, doing these things and denying them uh, oil and gas in the wintertime or or uh, grain and other kinds of foodstuffs that, that they need. Uh, those European governments are mostly parliamentary, and they can change overnight if, if, if the citizens lose confidence in the government. Yeah, at a time when they just got six million new refugees. Oh, that's a perfect storm for pro- for political problems there also. President Biden is proposing a billionaire's minimum income tax as his polls numbers fall. Based on what we've seen so far from the Biden administration, let's just say I have little faith that Joe Biden, of all people, is going to find, you know, I, I can already see the Senate parliamentarian, Kristen Sinema, Joe Manchin, blah, 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 why they really gave it a shot there, Dr. Tawheed. But for some reason, they couldn't get anything that would upset the billionaires um, through again. Am I being too cynical? No, no, no. I, I think this is uh, an attempt to increase um, Biden's approval rating, which is uh, uh, at 39 percent in the best polls, at 33 percent in some other polls. Uh, but the problem is, of course, Joe Manchin has already said he's uh, he's come out against this. 
the parliamentarian will probably probably weigh in on this, and and even though they don't have to, the Senate will will go with the Schumer, and the Senate will go with the parliamentarian. And the problem is, you know, when you're proposing something that that will fail, and and it's going to fail. Uh, in order to increase your approval ratings, people will simply look at you as incompetent and your approval ratings won't go up. They'll, they'll in fact, go down. And so when this does fail, and it'll fail over the summer, uh, Biden is going to, going, the Biden administration is going to get uh, a lowered approval rating as opposed to that. Now, there are things that Biden could do. One of the uh, popular things uh, that he could do is to forgive student loans. And uh, he doesn't have to wait for, for President Manchin to give him permission, permission to do that. He can do that by executive order. So he's, he's proposing things that, w- that will fail and not doing things that would succeed. That's, that's not competence in government. Uh, another uh, thing that I think we definitely should talk about, consortium news, IMF loans forcing austerity on crisis-ravaged uh, nations. The IMF is up to its old trick. It's giving pandemic-related loans to what they now call developing nations and, of course, as a result, they they forced them to do austerity on their people. The, the the true tragic thing is, at the same time they're telling these nations to do austerity, they would say to the European nations and what they consider the first world nations, don't do austerity, do more stuff for your people. Your thoughts? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is the the typical IMF uh, by 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 uh, bifurcated relationship between developing countries and and developed countries. Uh, yes, the IMF did uh, lend billions of dollars to developing countries during the pandemic to 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 get them through. Those are loans; they have to be paid back. And since these these countries are are uh, having a hard time paying them back, these austerity measures are uh, are intended to uh, force these countries to raise, let's say, raise taxes on food and other things in order to pay back the loans. When they can't pay back those loans because they're, they're, they can't raise they can't raise taxes on people who have no income. Uh, when when they can't pay back those loans, then the what what the IMF uh, does is uh, cause these countries to begin to sell off their assets. And so, for example, Greece, which which is a you know in the in the European Union, when they couldn't pay pay back their loans uh, to to the IMF, they were forced to sell off their national treasures like the Parthenon to to uh, financial institutions in order to raise the money to pay them back. And so this is this is a, a standard practice. There's nothing new about this. Uh, what is new in this process is that the, the China. Uh, has has opened a uh, international development bank, and many of these countries that are being forced into austerity, instead of being forced into austerity, will begin to borrow money from China, and and build that that um, multipolar uh, world in competition to the IMF, and so I think the IMF, you know, one of the um, um, the, the, the 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 statements from IMF officials is that uh, this is a bad idea. Well, I think it is a bad idea for the IMF because it, it, it allows the, um, the, it will cause the Chinese Development Bank to actually grow as developing countries become their clients and, and move away from the IMF. 
Uh, we'll see whether that's a good thing or a bad thing in the future, but but certainly the history with the IMF is not is not good. And I also think that um, we about a minute on this. I think that the um, I'm watching closely the French election because with Marine Le Pen, uh, you know, a far right candidate, but I think a big part of um, the reason that she has a chance to win is because of the economic hurt. Um, we got about a minute in in France. Yes, uh, they're, they're, they're certainly the economic reasons are, are part of the reasons that you had the ascendance of the far right in this country. Um, uh, not, not that the races and the fascists weren't there already, but uh, but they were able to whip up uh, other people who are in economic uh, desperation in this country to believe that a billionaire would actually come to their rescue. And so, far, and so Trump is elected. Uh, if I think it's even more volatile in European countries. Uh, France is an example of that, where the far right is looking at economic uh, uh, downturn uh, with a coming recession. And you mentioned immigrants and all of these other kinds of, of issues that are growing in Europe. And far right um, uh, politicians like Le Pen uh, have a chance. And in other countries, they, are, they, are, they will, in fact, win elections. And so we can see Europe going far right as a result of, of these um, U.S. policies. Yes, and I suspect it'll be far right and probably a non-interventionalist far right. Um, it's, you know, that there's going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch. Interesting is a word I'll use for now. We've been talking with Dr. Linwood Tawheed, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. A British court has ordered that publisher Julian Assange be extradited to the United States. Also, social media platforms are aggressively censoring challenges to the neocon narrative about the Ukraine crisis. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Good to be here again. In what his, law, his lawyers described as a brief but significant moment in the case, a British magistrate's court has signed off on Julian Assange's extradition to the United States, bringing the WikiLeaks founder one step closer to a U.S. trial under the Espionage Act, which threatens press freedoms worldwide. Caitlin Johnstone writes in Caitlin's new, at Caitlin Johnstone's uh, Substack uh, page. What are your thoughts on where we are, what's happening with the Assange trial? Jim Kavanaugh. Well, we're in a bad place. You know, uh, it's very unlikely that he will win any appeal and that's left for him in Britain. It's going to the Home Sec- Secretary, now Priti Patel, and uh, he, Patel is very unlikely to uh, annul the, the extradition. He's gonna, it's going to drag on for a couple more months in, in, in Britain. Meantime, Assange is being killed slowly in prison. You know, he's in a high security, highest security prison, and for no reason he should not be in the, under those circumstances. He's absolutely a nonviolent, not even done anything against British law. And, uh, you know, this is, this is killing him right now, and it has been for years. So, you know, this is a horrible thing that uh, represents the United States uh, claiming its authority around the world to uh, order other countries 
to arrest and imprison and extradite journalists from another country, a third country, on the, on the, and send them to the United States. And it's a very bad precedent. It's going to squash. It already is, I'm sure, uh, affecting journalists around the world who might think of doing such things as J- Julian Assange did. And we're going to, you know, I, I, I hope that can be there, there. You know, there are demonstrations in Britain. It's, it's, it's purely a political act now, purely a political decision by the, the political authorities of Britain, and they can change their minds. And, you know, the legal and political arguments against it are, are sound. But uh, uh, we're going to have to keep going and keep fighting. And if it gets to the United States, we'll have to fight like hell here. You know, I think it's a particularly interesting time right now because with the way the U.S. is reacting to the Ukrainian um, crisis, the hypocrisy is beyond belief. The, 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 you know, the we're standing up for democracies versus um, authoritarian, you, uh, you know, dictators, blah, blah, blah. We're standing up for, you know, the rights of dem- democracy as we look at the, uh, the person who we um, are supporting in Ukraine, who's closed down all the television stations, who's closed down opposition um, newspapers, who basically shuts down any opposition, literally imprisons opposition politicians who, who are successful, outlaws other opposition parties. All of this at the behest of the United States, clearly, because he's a bit of a puppet, if we're honest about it. At the same time, we're going and we're arguing that we're fighting authoritarian regimes. We're supporting all of that with Zelensky in Ukraine. We're um, uh, going after and prosecuting, persecuting Julian Assange. I think the level of hypocrisy is without equal. Jim, your thoughts? Yeah, Caitlin Johnstone is very good about that. You know, she's saying that the... the it's kind of astounding to watch the president of the United States complain about war crimes in other countries while he's persecuting a publisher for publishing the truth about American war crimes. So that's the situation we're in. It's so blatant that, you know, I think the rest of the world recognizes the hypocrisy and doesn't buy it and can't help but be disgusted by it. You know, anybody who has any, any kind of awareness of it can't help but be disgusted by it. Uh, and we have a situation, as you say, Ukraine, Zelensky is about to get, a media, I think, a media freedom award from someone. As you say, this is a situation where he's just shut down every, you know, he shuts down, they've shut down newspapers and media outlets that are, that are uh, critical of the government or critical of the narrative of the, of the government. They've closed all political parties except the right-wing parties. And, you know, even the Great Britain has an official secrets law and which, you know, forbids publication of certain documents. And they're thinking of making that stricter, which would essentially public, forbid the publication of anything that's outside the, uh, uh, the, the official narrative. The Labour Party has just said it's going to kick anybody out who criticizes NATO. So you have now a clampdown, uh, you, you know, of censorship around the world, around the Western world. Certainly in Ukraine, Ukraine is a situation of wartime censorship, but the Western world has adopted wartime censorship in a way that's just absurd and ridiculous, and they have no position. The United States is in no position, and Britain is in no position to preach to the rest of the world about human rights and press freedoms when they do things like this. Let me ask you this. I'm going to uh, just uh, kind of out of the blue. 
The so-called left in the United States, the so-called squad, the premier Jayapals, the congressional uh, progressive caucus, the so-called lefties in the United States, where are they? It seems to me that we have a so-called left in the United States that is funded and organized by the ruling elite class. But anyway, any rate, I don't want to get it. Your thoughts on what is that's completely radio silence on Julian Assange. They're voting for more weapons to go to Ukraine. To We've got a so-called left in the United States that's voting to send more weapons to people who have a wolf's angel neo-Nazi patch on their uniform. And who's who's uh, uh, if they take their shirt off, they're covered with swastikas and Nazi patches. And we've got a so-called left that's 100 percent for that. Your thought on the state of the left of politics in the United States? Yeah, there's no left in the Democratic Party in the United States. The Democratic Party is a right wing party by historical standards, by world political standards. It's a capitalist, imperialist, Zionist party. It says nothing about it pro-imperialist, pro-American exceptionalism, the leftists from Bernie Sanders to AOC to Pamela Jaipal won't speak up about that. Their political the, the political position is we have to try and get some kinds of uh, uh, little reforms in American politics, and we can't be bothered to speak up against American imperialism in any serious way. So American exceptionalism. And so that there is no left in this sense. You know, the, the People, you know, I've studied the left. I consider myself a Marxist. I've studied it for decades, and I have a historical understanding of the left. You know, and th- these people don't have that. They're they're just a reformist capitalist party. So that's the best you have. And and the the institutions of the major parties, certainly the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party also is, as you say, controlled by the elite, controlled by the American oligarchy, and they will never allow any. Anything to form within their ranks that would be a threat to that, to, to the, the rule of the oligarchy, and to American exceptionalism. So that's that case, uh, and that's what we have to. That's what we're dealing with. The left is outside of those parties. If there is one at all, and it's very, very weak. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, now you have this historical thing, which is amazing. Which is, you know, you cannot. They want to dismiss this and minimize it, but the presence of Nazism. This is not Trump voters. This is not, you know, people who don't like transgender pronouns. These are Nazis. These are political parties and factions that fought with Hitler during World War II and are proud of it and are fighting that war again. And they are they have a huge presence in the in – the, they are the fighting vanguard of Ukraine at this moment. Whether anybody likes to acknowledge or not, that's the situation. We're arming them, and we're pouring arms, another billions of dollars uh, Biden is talking about. Those arms are going into those groups. They're, this is just like uh, al-Qaeda and Nusra, which were – and we ended up being on their side in Syria – we are on the side of Nazis in Ukraine. We are giving them weapons, pouring it in. Those weapons are going to go around the world. I just saw a thing about uh, uh, Jewish and concentration camp survivor cemeteries in Germany being uh, defaced with Nazi symbols. The, you, the Nazis in Ukraine are on the Internet appealing to their na- Nazi comrades throughout Europe. Those arms that we're selling to them are going to be going to go around Europe, just like with the Al Qaeda and Al Nusra. So you have leftists in the United States just ignoring this fact. We are building up 
if the Nazis, if the Nazis win in Ukraine, that's going to be a big boost to Nazis, not just Marine Le Pen. You know, we're talking Nazis in Europe, throughout Europe. And this is going to be a big boost for that. And it, it, it's, it's incredible that, that people who consider themselves on the left don't want to think about that. It's bizarre. We, World, War II, World War III that we're in now is turning out to be World War II redux. And we're on the side of the Nazis. And here's the thing. They're not going to win in Ukraine. Um, they're not going to, you know, they're they're in the process of going down. But here's the thing, which means there's, what, six million so far? They're already scattering throughout Europe. The Europeans are all clapping their hands. Hooray! We're going to accept these lovely, wonderful little Ukrainian refugees. They're coming in. Oh, these poor families. Come, come one, come all, come into our homes. Some of these people, you ain't going to want them. You're not going to be so happy that you um, let some of these people into your homes, into your communities. And I'm not saying Ukrainian period, but I'm saying within that Ukrainian diaspora, there's a nasty, nasty element of Nazism that now, thanks to the United States, is going to spread throughout Europe in the same way that the U.S. created al-Qaeda, created the bin Laden people, etc., and then they spread throughout um, the uh, Middle East and infected the Middle East and destabilized the Middle East. We're doing the same thing. These Nazis, this is the vanilla ISIS, you might say. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, you know, I, I I live in an area of New York City, which is traditionally was filled since World War II with Ukrainian diaspora. I mean, I go to restaurants called Kiev and Odessa, and you know, we have the Ukrainian Friendship Association, and I know a lot of Ukrainians who own and frequent the bars I go to. So, you know, and they're good people, they're fun people. But you know, this the the, 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 the a lot of the people who came to the United States and to Canada were refugees. From World War II, from the fact that they were right-wing elements, that families that left when the Soviet Union won the war, so and who fought against the Soviet Union, uh, so that's part of it. I remember one guy was telling me when I was writing my articles in 2014 about Ukraine. You'd be careful; you get you'll get around, someone will push you in front of a bus. Meet someone in the neighborhood. <laughs> so, so you know, but this was that was trivial. Now we have. That's what's come to power in Ukraine. These revanchist factions who really were, they're fighting for Hitler. So, and they're, that's why they don't want to stop the war. They are, they have, first of all, they have an attitude, which is the Russians are part of of, of a fascist ideology where they're they're subhuman intervention. The Russians are part of that. And and so they're, they have these nasty attitudes that are, that are predominant and, there are elements of that in a lot of the Eastern European countries, certainly in Poland and Romania, and they're going to be reinforced. And they're in the Western European countries, too. You know, France capitulated to, to, to Nazi Germany. <laughs> there was a lot of support for fascism in France in, in World War II. And so you have to, you know, this is something which, which is, is an element of beneath the surface that's been simmering historically that we have to be aware of. And this has brought it back to the surface in a way that it's, we shouldn't be dismissing this, you know, and it's not unimportant. These are not a trivial element. They're not a small element. The fact that they're numbers, they're, they're, they may, you know, in Ukraine, certainly they've had a tremendous influence and it's a model for 
fascist groups around the world, what's happened in Ukraine, and the, the rise of the influence of fascists. So, you know, this is something that that's just there, and, and we, we can't ignore it, and, you know, uh, it's, it is part of the underlying thing here. And, and the fact is, what we have a situation, you say, well, the Ukraine's not going to win, they're not going to win. We have a tremendous, what I'm afraid of right now is we have a tremendous uh, uh, impetus you know, boiling up in this country to not let the Russians win. <laughs> and and that could be the impetus for a fight that's World War II, or, excuse me, World War Three. And it's very, very dangerous because the Russians know what they're fighting against. And they know what they're fighting for. And, you know, it, it is to them an existential thing. And Americans have to realize what they get into if they get into that. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. In her latest article, Margaret Kimberly argues that regardless of the outcome of the Ukraine conflict, President Biden's failure to act on any of his campaign promises will ultimately decide his political fate. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Margaret Kimberly. She's the editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book, Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much. Well, Joe Biden's polls are lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut, as I once heard in a, uh, in a, in a funny Western. But at any rate, um, your, thought on, um, your thought on Biden's current uh, pre- political predicament. Well, his uh, poll numbers continue to drop with the latest poll, uh, Quinnipiac poll, showing him with only a 33 percent approval rating, which is dismal by any measure. Uh, the irony is he uh, uh, is um, his actions in Ukraine have some measure of support. The propaganda war is uh, has been uh, won by the U.S. So most people only have access to the narrative, which says that everything is Vladimir Putin's fault and he's evil and uh, uh, poor Ukrainians are suffering because of the evil Russians. So people believe that, but it does not mean that Biden himself uh, has uh, any support. People are very angry about uh, the loss of the, for example, the child tax credit that he said he was going to act on some measure of student loan debt relief. That Build Back Better has um, not gone, is, is not going anywhere. Apparently it's not uh, going to build back better or worse. It's not going to happen. So all of the things that people need have not been addressed by the administration. Uh, we have uh, inflation, which started before February 24th, when the Russian military went into Ukraine. But now Biden is blaming everything on Vladimir Putin. And he even tweeted yesterday, the prices are going up because of COVID and Putin. And they've even coined this horrible phrase, uh, Putin's price hike, 
um, hoping to uh, deflect attention away from their own shortcomings. So if you ask people, uh, do they think Russia is at fault, they will say yes. But if you ask them, do you like Joe Biden, the answer is no. Well, I think, I think though, um, I, I'm pretty sure um, Joe Biden has a cure for his ills. Um, he, I found an article where he, now he's planning on including a billionaire's minimal, minim, minimum income tax in his $5.79 trillion fiscal budget for 2023. It will require that households with a network over $100 million pay a rate of at least 20% of their income, as well as unrealized gains in the value of assets like stocks and bonds. But I'm pretty sure that's going to get vetoed by the Senate parliamentarian. Margaret, your thoughts? Yeah, you you took the words right out of my mouth. This is an effort to fool people. You know, we, we, we couldn't get a uh, an increase in the minimum wage that he promised when he was campaigning. Uh, the Senate parliamentarian, we were told, said that it couldn't be included in the stimulus bill. My whole life, I don't recall any mention of a Senate parliamentarian deciding uh, what legislation was passed and what was not. They didn't want to do it. This is um, a uh, um, it, it's a scam. Uh, it's nonsense that this can be passed, and, and we don't even have to look at the Republicans. We can look at the Democrats. How many of them really want it? Uh, they, you know, they've been running this good cop, bad cop routine. Well, we would do this and that, but Mansion and Cinema, they won't let us do it. Uh, they, they are the agreed upon villains in the story. But the reality is, the Democratic Party um, is beholding to the oligarchic class in this country, who are demanding that the people not get anything that they need. So this will end up uh, uh, the, uh, in the, the same uh, uh, circumstances as the, uh, uh, the minimum wage and everything else that Biden uh, promised during his campaign but didn't deliver on. You know, last thing that you said, I think, the last part is important to comment on, and that is, this is the first time even Trump tried to get the wall. I may not have liked the wall, but he told his people, hey, I'm going to try to build a wall, and doggone it, there were the Democrats right there to sign off and make sure he got the wall, right? This is kind of the first time in my life that I can say that I've seen a president get elected who, the second he got elected, every promise, every Everything. In fact, he said he was going to get they said they were going to give people two thousand dollars if they won in Georgia. And the second they won, they're like, ah, we're going to make it fourteen hundred dollars. It's it's to me, it seems as Biden's cabinet is the neocons. The neocons only care about their foreign policy and their war. And the American people in their minds are just an annoyance. They seem to actually have nothing but contempt for the American people. Margaret. Well, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, the disdain is obvious, and uh, they continue it, but try to fool us. You know, they'll go on he and other so-called progressives. There aren't any progressives in Congress. Let's let's face it. They they are they don't do anything, regardless of how of what it is that they actually uh, believe. We can't. They don't get anything progressive passed. They rely on Biden's behalf. By the way, that's part of the reason he's so unpopular. Because uh, these people, uh, Pramila Jayapal and AOC, they would say, well, I give him an A. Uh, uh, He exceeds expectations uh, only for nothing he talked about to actually um, uh, happen. 
So I think it's just an insult to people, an insult to our intelligence that um, uh, we were told we were going to get $2,000, which is not what people should have gotten anyway. And then to be told, well, you already got 600 and so now you'll get 1400 and that equals 2000 and expect people not to notice and not to uh, be angry about it. I ask you to comment on the state of the so-called left. I mean, the premier Jayapal's, the people who now the only thing they care about is like a rainbow flag or a Black Lives Matter mask or something like that. You know, something that you can wear that looks or sounds, you know, they can say something. They can give you the latest slogan about whatever group that they're alleging that they're standing up for their rights. But in reality, they don't even really stand up for anyone's rights. And they got to get back. They, they can't take too much time out of their day because they got to get back to um, the House of Representatives so they can vote on another uh, billion dollars to go to the Nazis in Ukraine. Margaret. Well, y- yes, absolutely. That's that's all we get. Uh, smoke and uh, smoke and mirrors. And they will all they have is propaganda. So when you ask too many questions, the first thing they'll say is, well, do you want Trump? Do you want the Republicans in? And that unfortunately is still enough to uh, uh, get people to too many people to come back for uh, more punishment. So we're going to hear more about January 6th, about uh, uh, Trump, about Putin. Now Vladimir Putin is the stand-in for Trump. Everything is his fault. It's uh, I cannot believe that they really think this Putin's price hike is going to save them. It isn't. It isn't going to save them uh, at all. But um, but this is all they're uh, all they're left with is trying to scam people because doing what the people want is not what the oligarchic class wants. And um, the other thing is, and, and I mean, it would be bad enough. If they were just ignoring us, it would be bad enough if they if, if the Biden team were just like, OK, you know, we made a lot of promises, but we really ain't going to keep any of them. They are actually doing these Russia sanctions to make our economy worse and saying to us, hey, you know, you guys got to pay a few more dollars to annoy or aggravate Vladimir Putin. You guys got to suffer for our uh, um, hegemonic um, uh, imp- imperialist um, uh, project. So now the neocons have now got, I mean, we pay all of this money in taxes. They take that and they buy weapons and they give it to all of their Wall Street, whoever they give it to their you know weapons manufacturers. Now that's not even enough to support the empire. Now they're saying, oh, by the way, we're going to trash the economy, which is going to raise inflation and uh, you're going to pay more for gas and everything else. And that is all to get it Putin. And the reality is when we look at the Russia sanctions, they ain't even working. One could almost think that they're doing it intentional. I'm not saying that they are. One could almost say, well, what is this, the Great Reset? Maybe they're actually trying to take out our economy. I'm not saying they are, but I understand people who believe that. Your thoughts? Well, you're, you're, you're right about that. You know, this economic war of attrition against Russia is hurting people. It's hurting people all over the world. Uh, uh, for example, Russia and Ukraine are both major grain exporters, wheat exporters. Ukraine will have a smaller harvest and Russia uh, is going to be sanctioned. That means rising food prices to people all over the world, especially uh, hitting the global south the, uh, the hardest. 
Um, Russia is not, as, as uh, Joe Biden famously said, just, uh, you know, what, what did he say? Putin only has nuclear weapons and oil wells, and that's all he's got. No, uh, Russia's economy is integrated with that of the rest of the world, and you can't sanction Russia and try to cut off its oil supply and not hurt the, the U.S. and people everywhere else. So it's, um, it's a contest to see who folds first, but the U.S. is not going to destroy Russia's economy. will harm Russia, but they won't do what they um, say they're going to do, and all they're doing now is trying to uh, bully other countries, bully India, bully China, who it's, it's hilarious to me that these people think they can sanction China and accuse them of uh, having concentration camps and then turn around and ask China to beat up on their friend Russia and expect to get a, a yes answer. But this is the threadbare nature of uh, what passes for foreign policy now. It's all based on fantasy, very, very dangerous fantasy. Yeah, uh, I certainly agree with you, Margaret. And looking forward, I think that, and this is maybe I'm overly cynical, but it seems to me that the people who the, the 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 billionaires who pay the che- who write the checks for the Democrats also happen to be the billionaires who write the checks for the Republicans. So normally, in an instance like this, you would expect a political party to be aghast. You, in the past, they'd be trying to pass legislation. They'd be trying to do all kinds of things to save their hides. The Democrats are doing nothing. They seem to be yawning. It would lead one to suspect that the people who are writing their checks don't really care. They've gotten to the point they're like, ah, the Democrats, Republicans, one of them gets wiped out. We own them both. Doesn't matter to us. One of them's wiped out. And if you're a Democrat, yeah, you lose your job. You go to a think tank and make five times as much or a bank or wherever the case. So it seems to me the system has gotten to a point where it just doesn't matter anymore to these people. Margaret. Uh, oh, yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, I, I remember during the campaign, someone asked the CEO, of one of the defense contractors who he uh, wanted to be president. And he is I'm paraphrasing. He said he, it didn't matter. He knew he was going to get what he wanted. So and, and they are not uh, alone. Um, and Democratic Party leadership, these uh, members of Congress, they could fool people into believing they're progressive or uh, use uh, Donald Trump as a, or Mitch McConnell or whoever is the boogeyman of the day. Uh, and uh, if, even if they, they can, you know, if the circumstances are right, they might be able to fool enough of the people to get back in the office. But, but as you point out, if they don't get back in the office, they will still be okay. So they ultimately are not concerned because they have no reason to fear the people uh, who uh, unfortunately continue to go along uh, with, uh, with the okie doke and uh, believe that their lives are going to be demonstrably better if one party or the other is in power. So they can continue the scam and unfortunately with the consent of the people. I think you're right, uh, uh, Margaret. I really do. And I think uh, ultimately, uh, one minute, does Joe Biden get into the teens? Oh, my goodness. You mean as approval rating yeah. dropping that far? Yeah. Uh, I Possibly. I, I'm not sure. But, I, you know, 33 percent is pretty low. Yeah. Uh, that's enough uh, reason for him to be concerned. But uh, 
as we've just discussed, all we're going to get is more propaganda and more Putin's price hikes. I think you are correct. Thanks a lot. We've been talking with Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at the Black Agenda Report. Go to blackagendareport.com. They've got a lot of great stories. She's also the author of a great book, Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There is significant evidence that members of the Obama administration deliberately worked with al-Qaeda in Syria in a failed attempt to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad. Also, the illegal and unethical administrative detentions in Israel continue. Joining us to discuss these and other articles, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. But let's start before we get into those stories. There are things unfolding today and here on the critical hour. We try to hit the stories of the day. Been a lot going on here in Palestine. There's been some dust ups. I do understand that there's been potentially missiles fired. I also and we want to get into that. But I do want to ask you about this. I read a story where it appears that the um, uh, the fighters in Gaza have gotten some kind their hands on some kind of anti-aircraft missiles that they fired at helicopters and or at at uh, Israeli jets. Uh, before we get into what's happening today, do you know anything? Have you heard anything about that particular story? Oh, yeah, that's a huge development. It's the first time that uh, the resistance in Gaza uh, have used uh, air defenses, and they, so you, they used uh, Russian made air defenses that are very similar to the SAM missiles, and that chased out. Israeli F 15s and um, Apache helicopters out of the Gaza airspace. And since the morning, uh, actually since that incident yesterday, uh, things are um, unfolding very violently in Gaza. So what's the latest? What's going on today? I understand uh, that there's a, there's, a, there are a lot, there's a lot happening this morning. Yes, uh, the uh, sirens um, blared at least twice in the uh, colonies enveloping the Gaza Strip, the uh, Iron Dome, missiles, uh, air defenses sh- uh, started firing those those two times. In both cases, the Israelis denied that there was any missiles coming from Gaza, and they claimed that their uh, Iron Dome, Dome is misfiring um, and because of medium uh, weight, medium-sized uh, mis- uh, um, uh, machine gun fire from Gaza. So if uh, this claim by the Zionists can be only interpreted in two ways. One, if they're telling the truth, then their Iron Dome is in a big uh, problem uh, because the uh, resistance in Gaza can just continue firing medium-sized machine guns and spent all the air defenses of the Zionist colony. And if they are lying, and actually that there's missiles coming from Gaza and firing into uh, the colony, 
that means that they are attempting to hide that reality and avoid a real war with Gaza. Now, I'm going to throw this at, at you, uh, something I've been thinking about, and that is since the um, the uh, Ukraine crisis has happened and the U.S. has been, I mean, you know, contradictory to p- past positions, particularly when it comes to, you know, Israel and Palestine. Israel has continue, continually attacked um, uh, the Palestinians, killed, you know, many, many thousands of um of um of Palestinian civilians each time and the US has you know not made much noise and now this dramatic overreaction in Ukraine and a failure to to accept any nuance in the discussion of it i kind of think that the US doesn't want anything happening in Israel because it would be very embarrassing for people to point out to them, wait a minute, you guys are over the top. So are you, now are you going to say Israeli athletes can't run in the Boston Marathon? Are you, are, are you going to avoid the sanctions on Israel that people will start pointing out the hypocrisy? And I kind of think, do you think that's an issue? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the hypocrisy have been laid bare to the world with this uh, war in Ukraine in terms of uh, how the West uh, values the lives of what it considers part of its peoplehood of the imagined whiteness versus how it uh, you know, values the lives of people in Africa and Asia and Latin America. And therefore, there's no more. There's n- nobody in the world anymore believes the hypocrisy of uh, human rights and democracy that the United States uh, keeps pushing on on the world uh, at huge costs. Now, um, one thing to to remember right now is uh, that um, you know the United States is attempting to withdraw from Western Asia uh, to be able to confront Russia and China in in those two zones, and in its quest to do that, it's uh, attempting to de-escalate the situation in West Asia, including with the uh, continued uh, nuclear uh, discussions and and dialogue with with Iran to sign a deal there, um, and in hopes to enact a mini military alliance between Israel and the Gulf vessel states uh, by the time it leaves that can fill the vacuum of its power. Unfortunately for the United States, the Zionists and the Gulf uh, monarchs have lost their minds and are not able to hold themselves back. The actions of uh, Israel in Jerusalem over the last uh, few weeks in Ramadan, in the middle of Ramadan, the, the continued racist and belligerent actions in the Aqsa Mosque that led us last year to a war are being repeated by the Zionists, and these are the actions of an irrational actor uh, that uh, doesn't even know they're the best for themselves even. Do you think that the actions of Israel in the Al-Aqsa mosques are causing difficulties for some of the um, Arab leaders who have, you know, aligned themselves more closely through the Solomon Accords or whatever they were, Abraham Accords, whatever it was. They've aligned themselves more openly and closely with um, Israel and, and the United States. Do you think that these are causing problems for them or causing more instability in the region? Oh, yeah, it's, it's causing, for instance, a huge problem for Jordan. Although Jordan wasn't part of the Abraham Accords, it's, it's the one of the most important pillars of the policies of uh, the Zionist colony in the region. Its relationship with Jordan and Egypt are more important than its relationship with any of the Gulf monarchs. And as we see in Jordan right now, the country is on fire 
and the population is, uh, you know, very angry at the leadership in Jordan. And here you have the king of Jordan whose only legitimacy hinges on him being the custodian of the holy sites and the protector of, uh, you know, the Aqsa Mosque. And he has... He's, uh, he's not able to stop his supposed allies, the Zionists, from doing anything. So we hear statements right now coming out from the Jordanian government that are very severe in their position, uh, unheard of from before. And that tells you that, uh, you know, and we see right now the, the Gulf countries moving in the Arab League uh, to, you know, uh, and, and have already made condemnations of the uh, actions of the Zionists. And that shows you how weak they are. They are scared right now from their own population. Um, and as the uh, uh, resistance in Palestine increases uh, its response, they will uh, be facing um, a really hard uh, moment, these uh, collaborating leaderships in the Gulf. Aaron Matei has, has an interesting story in in uh, Real Clear Investigations where he talks about uh, Jake Sullivan, who now is one of the top advisors to President Biden, and basically sending a message that said al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria and how basically open and obvious it has been that the United States, while claiming to the American people that they were in the Middle East to fight um, jihadists, were actually providing, openly providing arms and and uh, and, and assistance. Um, your thoughts on that article? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a great article. It's good for people who don't know uh, this basic information. But, uh, you know, look, uh, historically speaking, uh, the United States has always been on the side of uh, fascist organizations that are working against liberations of peoples. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> look at what's happening in, in Ukraine with the Nazis right now and the United States being their main uh, financer and, and uh, arm. The provider, and that takes us back to even World War II, before the United States engaged in the world uh, World War II. How much of the uh, American um, establishment was actually collaborating with the Nazis, and and of course after the end of the war, how much of the Nazis were absorbed into the structures uh, that uh, the United States created after the end of the war, from NATO to the United Nations and uh, NASA and what have you. So. Uh, it is a, not a surprise the United States is the sponsor of most of uh, fascist and terrorist movements in the world, uh, real terrorists. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Syria right now, that has been exposed for a while. It's almost irrelevant because on the ground, the, the Wahhabi contrast that the United States manipulated to create the situation in Syria have been minced. And now, hopefully, uh, the Nazis in Ukraine will also be minced. Um, there's a, 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 an interesting article over at Mondo Weiss. Currently, 4,450 Palestinians are, Palestinians are being held in Israeli prisons, among them 32 women, 162 children, and 530 administrative de detainees held, and this is the important part, without charge. Or trial. It's kind of like a, a, the secret police uh, will do in a, in a totalitarian state. They, they call it, you know, disappearing people. They just grab people, disappear, and they have no rights whatsoever, which means they're not considered humans if they have no rights. What do you know about that program? Oh, it's one of the most horrendous programs. Uh, the uh, these, these illegal detentions with no charges or trial. Uh, I mean, look, uh, the Zionists are deprived 
they they even hold uh, hostage the bodies of uh, Palestinians that were martyred. Hundreds of Palestinians are, are either buried in numbered grave graveyards with, and held hostage their bodies, and or uh, you know not even uh, kept in in freezers for decades. Some of them. So we're we're talking about uh, a regime that is um, based on supremacy and thinking that a chosen people. Uh, are the ones that are real humans and the subjects of colonialism. The Palestinians are guim, uh, soulless bodies. This is what what the uh, supremacist basis of uh, Zionism, um, you know, project to the world, and it's in open. They they speak like this openly, and unfortunately, they are emboldened by the fact that Western media and Western elites entertain this racist language uh, on a daily basis on on major broadcasts in the United I see here 160 children how young I mean have they you've the children been arrested or detained um what do you know about that in Israel uh Palestinian children oh, Yes this is again uh, to show you how inhumane the Zionists are I mean some of these children the youngest one was 11 there's some children that were born in actual uh, jail with their mothers that are held under uh, these administrative detentions and the children themselves, the babies, the, the newborn being held under this administrative detention with their mothers. This is, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I personally, as a Palestinian, don't want to make people feel that we are a, um, a humanitarian case. Of course, the Zionists are inhumane in their treatment for the last hundred years of the Palestinians, but our will will not be defeated, and all this inhumane treatment of the Palestinians will only uh, strengthen our own humanity. What's obvious is when I saw the number, something like 450,000, no, excuse me, 850,000 Palestinians have been arrested and imprisoned by the Israeli regime and only a handful of Israelis. So it's obvious that this is a, I would say it's a law, but it's not a law, absolutely. I, I would say, I would think this is a law that only applies to Palestinians when it's actually the opposite. It's an absence of law where there should be law that applies equally to everyone. We got about 30 seconds. Yes, I mean, at the core of colonialism and imperialism is the codification of uh, genocide and the codification of supremacy. You know, so when we talk about common law and how it's codified, the end results of, let's say, the mass incarceration of black people in the United States, this is codified. And they call it law, of course, but it's, it's codification of injustice and making it a system. Uh, that's what is at the core of imperialism and colonialism. Thank you very much. That's Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. 
A cabal of former national security leaders are arguing that big tech and social media platforms are vital interests of the intelligence and foreign policy apparatus of the United States empire. Joining us to discuss this, we have Caleb Maupin. He's a journalist and political analyst. Caleb, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. Caleb, let's start before we get going. I know you're doing some important work. You have a you have a, a think tank organization, all kinds of things going on. So fill our listeners in as to what, what uh, where they can find your uh, your organization and what you're up to. Sure. I'm with the Center for Political Innovation, CPIUSA.org. Uh, we have a lot of conferences. We're putting forward a lot of policy papers. Uh, we want to build a better United States beyond the system where profits come before people. That sounds awesome. And they can find you on Twitter also, right? Yes. Uh, just Caleb Maupin, C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N. I stream regularly on YouTube. I'm on Rockfin. I'm on Facebook. So, yeah, just Caleb Maupin, C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N. Uh, and I watch, just so you know, I watch Caleb's stuff a lot. I pretty much don't miss any of it. He does a lot of late-night chats, really good stuff, so you'll enjoy it. That's a, a YouTube page, you and, and Rockfin, I might add, that you're going to have to subscribe to. So Glenn Greenwald has a great story. Former in, well, I don't know if the word great is correct, <laughs> is, the, is the word I want to use, but former intelligence officials citing Russia say big tech monopoly power is vital to national security. When the U.S. security state announces that big tech's centralized censorship power must be preserved, we should ask what this reveals about whom this regime serves. Caleb Maupin, your thought on this, I think, very important story. Well, it's interesting because we have antitrust laws in order to prevent the economic problem of monopolistic stagnation. Generally, the way the capitalist market works um, is you have expand or die. If a company is not getting bigger, uh, it starts getting smaller uh, and it starts, you know, being defeated. And you have, you know, companies competing with each other, combining, you know, contending for power, uh, you know, trying to maximize their profits, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually you get what's called a monopoly, where one, one company dominates the market and really has no serious competition. Um, and generally what happens is the government then goes and breaks up a monopoly in order to get the competition going once again. Because if you get a monopoly, you get stagnation. The result uh, is that the companies are no longer competing with each other. Uh, that magic of the free market doesn't work anymore. Um, and, you know, the, uh, the quality of the services people get decreases, the prices go up, etc. So... So the idea behind antitrust legislation is to keep the capitalist market in a competitive state by breaking up big monopolies. Well, now we have a situation where there are some very clear monopolies. YouTube is a very clear monopoly. Google is a very clear monopoly. Uh, Twitter, very clear monopoly. Facebook, these are, these are monopolies if there ever were. There's no one who comes anywhere close to them. No one who comes anywhere close to them in the market. They're not competing in order to survive. Um, but now we have the government stepping forward and saying, don't break them up. Don't, you know, operate by the standard operating procedure of, of you know, in avoiding monopolistic stagnation. Instead, keep them there because the role that they are playing in information warfare and psychological operations for the U.S. State Department is too valuable. They're basically saying that, uh, that by having, you know, the social media giant centralized, and, you know, centralized in the hands of a few, they can more effectively control the message out there, specifically in relation to Russia and China. So really, at this point, they're admitting that the social media giants are a wing of the U.S. government. They are a private wing. They are a for-profit wing. Uh, but they are functioning and performing a service that is a state service. They are engaged in 
military psychological operations. They are engaged in U.S. State Department activities. Um, and then in order to make that more effective and to keep it as effective as it currently is, you can't break them up. And this is a blatant revelation. This tells us a lot, a lot about the role these tech giants play, about the ways of censorship that we're seeing. Um, and it really blows a huge amount of the lid off of the hypocrisy uh, that we're hearing from U.S. leaders when they talk about an open society, the free flow of information, free discourse, etc. That's not the case. Uh, these are entities designed to control the discourse to serve their own ends. You know, one of the things I think interesting about this letter is some of the names on it, you know, Morell, Panetta, et cetera. And that is right around the uh, 2020 election, there was a letter that came from 51 former intelligence officials. And it basically said it was kind of amorphous, but it said that the Hunter Biden laptop story had, quote, the earmarks of Russian disinformation. It went on to say there's no evidence whatsoever that it is. And it didn't, what an earmark is wasn't clearly defined. But in hindsight, we learned what we already knew, that it wasn't Russian disinformation. At the time, here's what I think is interesting about that too. At the time we find out later, that was written at a time when the FBI actually had possession of the laptop's data. So the FBI knew that it wasn't, um, quote, Russian disinformation at the time that these people were writing a letter and broadcasting it all over the place saying it had whatever earmarks are. I don't know what an earmark is, but whatever it is, apparently this had it. So it just, the rabbit hole goes deeper where it's clear that not only were these former intelligence officials working to influence and influence the outcome of the election. But the FBI, by not saying, well, you know, it doesn't have any earmarks. It actually is just valid stuff because we all already have it. The FBI was actually, by, the, by, 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 by a crime of omission, working to influence the outcome of the election also. Your thoughts. And now here they are again, the exact same people, and we're supposed to, well, I do believe them this time in that they're outing themselves and they're outing what the social media platforms are used for, Caleb. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it goes deeper than that, because at the time that the Hunter Biden story came out, you'll recall that uh, it was banned from the New York Post. Uh, the New York Post story on it was banned from Twitter and Facebook. Um, there was just a huge effort to just silence it. Every time it was brought up in the media, there was outcry. How dare you say this? But at the time, we couldn't get a flat denial that it was true. Right. I mean, that was the thing. They would say, well, it sounds like Russian disinformation, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't straight up deny that it wasn't. It, was, it didn't exist. I mean, they, 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 they backed away from doing that because now we know because they knew it was real. Um, but it seemed like even though it was true, there was this feeling that if one discusses it, uh, that makes you somehow immoral or bad or it can't be allowed to be part of the debate because possibly it sounds like something Russia might say. I mean, they haven't shown and demonstrated any Russian involvement in getting that story into the public sphere. I mean, they, they just, it, it's the idea is they, the intelligence agencies, said it sounds like something that Russia might say. So therefore, we should treat it as false, and we should not acknowledge it or engage with it. We should go as far as banning it from social media platforms, banning discussion of it. I mean, that is on a whole nother level. Uh, that is a, a layer of them blatantly saying, we are controlling the discourse. We are deciding 
what stories are allowed to be discussed and what stories are not allowed to be discussed. And if we decide something is not permitted, even if it's true, even if we know it to be true, uh, we, we are going to shut it out of discourse. And that is a great example of what this story is hinting, that they want the ability to craft discourse and determine what is up for debate, what is not, what is allowed to be said, and what is not allowed to be said. That's what they want to do. Um, and the idea that these tech monopolies uh, might be broken up under U.S. antitrust legislation, they're threatened by that because that would hinder their ability to maintain this kind of ideological dominance over political discourse. And that's that should be horrifying. I mean, we have we have totalitarian leaders that want to control our minds, and they're worried uh, about a mechanism through which they blatantly are doing so. Uh, they're worried about that being limited to some degree or hindered. I mean, th- this is really blatant, if, if ever. Yeah. In fact, if one were going to um, file uh, uh, ever going to file suit and argue that the um, these um, social media platforms are part of the public discourse and should be regulated regular relative to the constitutional relative to the First Amendment, the, the you know, the, like the Prune Yard uh, versus California case, this would be evidence to me. This would be they could should be called in. But let me throw something at you, too, that I think is we have to talk about here in this story. The these same, you know, you think of them just as, OK, they're former intel officials. So, you know, this is the spook line to go in there and say, hey, you know, let's keep on using these things as tools. However, it gets even worse. These people who wrote the letter, most of them or a significant portion of them work for a company that does PR for these very big tech companies. And then I look in here and find out in this article, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, he has a daughter named Jessica who's a registered lobbyist at Amazon, according to New York State Records, and his daughter Allison works at Facebook as a product marketing management. And uh, uh, manager, excuse me. So we see these guys getting paid. But, you know, how am I supposed to get mad at them or say this is odd? What I'm seeing with this, with Chuck Schumer, is the United States, you know, for all the talk of Ukraine being one of the most corrupt countries in the world, it's the perfect place. It was the perfect place for the United States to overthrow and install the government because the level of corruption in our government cannot be um, passed by any country. Your thoughts? Oh, sure. I mean, it's it's pretty much a revolving door. I mean, the military industrial complex, big tech, uh, the big oil companies and the elected officials on Capitol Hill, uh, they're all closely intertwined with each other. Um, and this notion that somehow, you know, in the United States, we have this great free market system where the government keeps its hands off and those who work hard get ahead and those who don't fail. I mean, no one believes that anymore. I mean, it's really clear that we have, you know, we're ruled over by a lot of big, powerful corporations. The government is a wing of those big, powerful corporations. Big tech uh, is, is the private property, literally on paper, of those big, powerful corporations. The big banks sit at the center of it um, and, and pump credit in and out of it. Uh, we have the big oil monopolies through which the United States dominates the world. And that's the global setup. Um, and that's what we live under. Um, and this is very much an oligarchy. And the fact that this word oligarch has been turned into a weaponized term that people associate with Russia is pretty ridiculous because oligarchs rule the United States pretty blatantly. Uh, and the government is just an entity uh, that they, uh, they, put, they put in power to carry out their wishes. Uh, whereas, you know, in Russia, there are a lot of rich people, but they kind of live in fear of a very powerful government. 
that has emerged to stabilize their economy in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. So, the, you know, the idea that we associate oligarch or oligarchy with Russia is pretty ridiculous because the United States is the greatest example of an oligarchy that you can possibly point to. You know, Caleb, this ter- this uh, the words they use: disinformation, Russian uh, uh, misinformation, Russia lies. You know, we're doing this segment right here on Radio Sputnik. What we're say- doing to one of two things: reading from an article, and this, I mean, I'd, it's uh, someone's perfectly welcome to submit information to me to say Chuck Schumer's kids don't work for where we have just reported that they worked. That uh, that that what we're saying that these names aren't on that letter. They, the, it's actually the opposite. They are upset. And they want to shut down um, alternative news sites, not because they have disinformation, but because they tell the truth and because they're honest about where they're coming from. Your thoughts? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, it used to be the role of academia was to kind of, you know, keep our politicians honest. We wanted people with dissident views in academia to, like, point out the shortcomings and weaknesses of our system to make it more effective. And... It used to be that there was kind of a feeling that that the role of, you know, maybe liberals or dissidents was to kind of help the United States, right? To kind of test us, to point out our flaws, to point out ways we could get better. That was kind of the the Cold War liberal way of looking at things. Uh, But that's kind of gotten lost. And now there's this feeling that anyone who says certain things or, or speaks too far from the script, they're working for the enemy. Don't listen to them. Shut them down. Silence them. Uh, and it's very, very bizarre. Um, and it's it's painted a lot of times in very, very liberal language. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's becoming very clear that the U.S. system is very, very threatened by criticism and by critiques and by the pointing out of its flaws and that they are very desperate to try and control the terms of discourse in these times. Because the information revolution has greatly changed their ability to do so. And, you know, yeah, they may dominate the, uh, the tech giants and social media. There's a whole Internet out there, uh, and there's a whole lot of different views out there in the world. There's a whole lot of different media outlets and perspectives, and they can try to ban them from social media outlets, and they can try to urge people to never listen to them. But these views are out there, and the means of information uh, spreading is much uh, bigger and much uh, more more widespread and diverse than it once was, and their ability to really control the discourse is limited, and they know that. We've been talking with Caleb Moppin, Moppin, journalist and political analyst, and check out the Center for Political Innovation, CPIUSA.com? CPIUSA.org. Dot O-R-G, my bad. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. In an environment eerily reminiscent of Nazi Germany, Ukrainian security groups are involved in kidnapping, torturing, and even assassinating dissenters and journalists who oppose their narrative. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Mint Press News journalist, author, and movie producer Dan Cohen, and friend of the show. Dan, welcome back. Hey, good to be with you. 
So uh, just so you know, everyone, go to mintpressnews.com. The, the article by Dan Cohen, testimony reveals Zelensky's secret police plot to liquidate opposition figure Anatoly Sheree. This is a very interesting story, although I probably mispronounced his name. Talk to me about it. What do people need to know? Let's give a, the narrative of the story overall so, so, we can get, so people can get a good understanding of it, Dan. Let's start there. Well, I, th- I think you, if you're if you're not pronouncing it correctly, then neither am I. I'm saying it the same way. I'm pretty sure we got it right. But um, Anatoly Sheree is a prominent Ukrainian opposition leader who fled Ukraine in 2012. So before the Maidan coup, he's basically um, a longtime blogger, journalist who's exposed a lot of corruption, neo-Nazi networks of which there are many in Ukraine, and um, he actually. Uh, created a political party in 2019 called the Party of Cherie, kind of a uh, libertarian political party that um, he uh, his party would appeal to kind of young people, tech people, you know, small business owners, that kind of thing. And they would very, very effectively troll Poroshenko, the incumbent president during uh, his reelection campaign. And he actually supported Zelensky. Um, and because Zelensky portrayed himself as a basically, you know, anti-corruption guy who was going to bring kind of a fresh face uh, to politics from the outside. As soon as Zelensky got elected, he uh, turned on, on Cherie and has basically been trying to assassinate him ever since. Um, and so, so that's, that's the basis of my story. I got um, testimony from two people who were in a in the SBU headquarters. The SBU is Ukraine's intelligence service, very similar to, it's like a Gestapo-type organization, um, known for torturing and killing uh, uh, dissidents in Ukraine, of which there are, have been many killed. And I got testimony from two men who um, got out of this torture prison, and they you know, described to me some very horrible forms of torture and witness uh, and murder that they witnessed, including two men from Belarusia who they say were beaten to death. Um, one of them was he had hot uh, he had hot needles shoved under his fingernails, for example. Um, and after he was released, he was basically they found a video of Cherie on his phone. I call him Igor in the article. This guy, they found a video of, of Cherie in Igor's phone. And they figured, oh, maybe we can use him to get to Cherie. So they basically then were nice to him, tried to send him to Spain, where Cherie is uh, in exile. Um, and uh, so then he would basically spy on him, surveil him, you know, get any information. And so this guy, Igor, bravely, instead of, you know, going to do the SPU's dirty work, he went to another country and he told Cherie what happened. And so it ended up coming to me. But uh, uh, so, yes, yeah, the story of, um, you know, SBU attempted, you know, apparently an attempted assassination and, and this kind of thing. It's eerily reminiscent of Nazi Germany, particularly when the fact that you got literal Nazis running around um, in Ukraine in no short or, in, you know, in no small, uh, small bunches. But here's what really, I think, is the upsetting part. I mean, it's all upsetting, but here's the, the, as an American. My understanding is um, that there is a CIA connection that this SBU building where they're torturing people, beating people to death, um, shoving hot needles under people's f- uh, uh, fingers, things of that nature, that there's a CIA office or something in there. Right. According, 
uh, to an investigation that I referenced in my article. Yes, exactly. Um, the Basically, the SBU is a project of the CIA. Um, Ukraine's intelligence service, basically just, you know, run by the CIA, which um, there is apparently, or I should say reportedly, as you said, an entire floor in the SBU headquarters in Kiev uh, devoted to the CIA, for the CIA. So, pres- so presumably CIA operatives, CIA agents are working out of there and directing the SBU. Um, these, you know, torture methods are not particularly unique to Ukraine. Um, they, you know, it's, it's, it sounds like classic kind of, you know, 1980s Latin America um, torture stories that you heard about in Planned Condor. That's, that's what I think of, these kinds of things. Um, that the CIA was, you know, behind all of it, training all of these intelligence agencies that basically uh, mass murdered the left in various countries in Latin America. So, um, you know, I have to wonder, are these decisions about who is being targeted in Ukraine? Of, you know, again, there have been many people killed by SPU, um, including even a couple, uh, a couple of mayors, elected officials have been assassinated. Um, and basically anyone who dissents from this total pro-war narrative um, and is acute and can be accused of sympathy for Russia um, can be killed and many of them have been killed and so I wonder are these decisions about who are who is to be killed are those made at Langley you know seven miles away from where I live in Washington DC whatever it is or you know what what is the true extent of US involvement because we know that Ukraine is a vassal state of the US you know, the other thing you say that um, you actually say in here, the SBO also collaborates with neo-Nazi groups, including right sector Azov and C-14, which was contracted by the Ukrainian government to, construct, to uh, conduct street patrols. And so here's the interesting thing about that. And that is, you know, we see these articles that are like Nazi denials everywhere in in the U.S. Well, uh, Vladimir Putin says that there's Nazis in Ukraine, but not really. That's all a fry, you know. And then you read down the article and then it says somewhere down there, but, you know, maybe there's a few of them running around here and there, right? And, and it's not that there's Nazis running around in Ukraine and that they're like just a, a rogue element. According to what you're saying and what I've read many pl- other places, the intelligence service literally collaborates with these and the government of Ukraine, that is really a puppet government of the United States, has paid these people and contracted them to do street patrols and other jobs. Your thoughts? The Nazi influence and power that uh, has been, you know, the power of Nazis in Ukraine after the 2014 Maidan coup is basically unparalleled. For, I'll, give, I'll give a perfect example. Just a few months ago, um, Dmitry Yarosh, who is the head of right sector of a neo-Nazi paramilitary, was appointed as the chief advisor to the Secretary of Defense um, in Ukraine. So, you know, this is not a marginal position. This is a key position. Um, and you have the, the, um, the chief command in, in Ukraine taking pictures uh, proudly with neo-Nazis from right sector flying a a red and black blood and soil uh, flag. So, um, I mean, that's just one example, and there are many, you know, many, you know, police chiefs throughout Ukraine are, are Nazis. They call them Banderites. They're all supporters of, um, of the Nazi-era uh, collaborator, um, Stepan Bandera. And so, you know, this is just a, a dirty secret that it has been reported in U.S. media before and used to be reported, but since basically 
February, um, since, you know, Russia's offensive in Ukraine to basically put an end to this eight-year war started, all of a sudden you can't say there are Nazis in Ukraine. It's like, uh, you know, all the, all the mainstream media is just doing basically, you know, Nazi denial. They're all whitewashing Nazis, and it's absolutely Disgusting. You know, one of the things you refer to this is uh, the, the the particular building, and I mean, it's something for people to think about. You refer to it as a small Guantanamo. We're talking about a literal former sports complex that was turned into a torture prison. They, you know what? It also makes me think about the CIA black sites around the world, that this is kind of classic CIA black site. When, and let me add this. And the offshoring of other things such as, I don't know, bio, biological research labs. In other words, it just sounds like to me the U.S. overthrows the government of Ukraine and all the horrible, terrible things that they couldn't get away with here, they're doing there. It's like, let's just hide it all in this little Nazi-esque kind of country and do all of our dirty work there. And this is like their uh, uh, Guantanamo times 10. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. A small Guantanamo was the quote that uh, Igor gave to me, you know, when he was describing this, this sports complex, which is actually connected to the SBU headquarters, um, you know, basically these halls and rooms that at one point may have been used for, you know, uh, um, athletes to, you know, to change into their uniform or locker rooms or this kind of thing. Well, now you have people, you know, being beaten with metal pipes um, inside, uh, inside this, you know, tortured dungeon. Um, you have, uh, well, they play the Ukrainian national anthem, uh, you know, blasting it. Um, you also, you know, they play Ukrainian metal music, hardcore, you know, fascist music while they torture people. So, you know, it's exactly, I mean, what you said, these black sites, these CI torture black sites all over the world where U.S. basically, you know, subcontracts people to do its dirty work. And actually, according to the accounts I was given, it's not... The SBU agents are overseeing what they call territorial defense to carry out a lot of the torture. Territorial defense are civilians that um, at the beginning of the Russian offensive inside Ukraine were given weapons by the government. And many of these were criminals, um, people who were suddenly let out of prison. Um, and and basically they carried out uh, agendas um, personal agendas, settling scores, going and, you know, killing an old lover or someone who owed them $50 or something like that. And now, and they've, and they've also been um, carrying out the torture under the, the watch of the SBU agents. So perhaps in case there is a day where, uh, you know, these people are put on trial, well, the SBU agents can say, oh, we didn't do it. It was, you know, it was these guys. So they didn't actually carry out the crimes themselves. They just instructed and oversaw and, you know, and I don't want to lose fight the, uh, 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 track of, of, of the reality. This guy, Anatoly Shari, in, in your article, once again, you can find it. It's called Testimony Reveals Zelensky's Secret Police Plot to Liquidate Opposition, fi- Opposition Figure Anatoly Shari. You can find it. That's by Dan Cohen. It's in mintpressnews.com. That basically his crime for which apparently the the um the ukrainian uh, uh secret service as it were wanted to rub him out his crime simply was he was a political dissident and he agreed with uh, he he disagreed with the government and he was uh he voiced his opinion loudly Dan. yeah exactly i mean there's no uh uh crime that Sherry has actually committed i mean he was the SBU 
after already um, sending an assassin to to kill him, uh, there was a there was a, a written confession from a Ukrainian criminal who got to Spain and ended up turning himself into Catalan police, saying that he was sent to assassinate Anatoly Shari. So then, after that, that it's known that the SPU wanted to assassinate him and neo-Nazis have long wanted to assassinate him, then uh, the SPU summoned him to come back to uh, Ukraine and, um, and be interrogated. And, of course, Anatoly Shari rejected that. He just did not show. And so they accused him of treason. So, you know, what exactly is his crime here? It's only speaking, uh, you know, speaking, about the, speaking the truth about the nature of uh, the Ukrainian regime and the neo-Nazis who have been um, so prevalent in it to um, basically, you know, U.S., uh, uh, the U.S. cultivating them for, for decades and decades. Yeah, this is uh, pretty horrifying stuff, Dan, I must say. Um, and uh, once again, Dan Cohen. And Dan, where can they find all your stuff online? Uh, all my all my work lately is at mintpressnews.com. You can follow me on Twitter at DanCohen3000. I'm very active there, and, and yeah, see what, what else I can produce. All right, thanks a lot. Uh, we've been talking with Dan Cohen. He's a Mint Press News journalist, author, and movie producer. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. A Polish Jewish journalist has quit his job after being pressured to refer to the Azov Battalion as an extremist group rather than a neo-Nazi organization. Also, Russia has successfully test-fired a new ICBM in an apparent message to NATO and the U.S. Empire. Joining us to discuss this and other stories, we have investigative journalist and author Dan Lazar. Dan, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, let's talk about this, a, a couple of things uh, a bit. So this guy, apparently, um, his name was uh, Konstanty Geber, Gebert, Gerbert. I don't know. I'm not good with that. Who knows? But he's in Poland, so God only knows. They could call him Bill. But at any rate, um, apparently, they, the newspaper, which was considered the paper of record in, 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 in uh, Poland, um, he demanded that he refer to the um, Azov Battalion as far-right instead of neo-Nazi. You know, you and I have talked about this whole business a bit of the neo-Nazis in Ukraine, and heaven knows we could go on about Poland, I'm sure, too. But your thoughts on this? First of all, I think the cover-up of the Nazi role in the Ukraine is the great crime uh, of, the, of the era. I mean, it's astonishing. Uh, I mean, the, the, the question of Nazi influence is pervasive throughout uh, the country. Uh, Stepan Bandera was a, 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 a Ukrainian nationalist who allied himself with Nazi Germany. Um, uh, during World War II, World War II, 1941 to 45, his followers killed thousands of Jews and perhaps as many as 100,000 Poles uh, as a consequence of a vicious genocidal uh, ethnic cleansing operation that uh, that Bandera and his supporters launched in the summer of 1943. 
He was a very bad guy. He was a Nazi, yet there are statues of him, plaques, uh, conferences in his honor. Uh, there's a national holiday in his honor. Uh, there, are, there are annual torchlight parades on his birthday on January 1st. It is shocking. And what we are seeing now is a massive cover-up, which is itself a, a scandal of the first order. So when this, when this uh, paper in Poland denies this, this journalist, who happens to be Jewish, the right to refer to the, to describe the Azov Battalion, uh, you know, to describe it accurately and properly as neo-Nazi, when this paper uh, denies him that right, it is part of this cover-up. And I might add the, uh, the paper's um, uh, longtime editor-in-chief is a guy named Adam Mishnick, who was a very prominent dissident uh, during the, uh, the, 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 the late Soviet period. Uh, Mishnick ended up supporting the U.S. invasion of, of, uh, of Iraq. So the paper's uh, role has not been spotless over the years. But, um, but this, this cover-up of the Nazi, Nazi dimension of a Ukrainian society is just a crime, an absolute crime. I agree with you. And, you know, we you and I both covered this. You know, we, we covered this uh, fairly broadly before the before the invasion, which we had no way of knowing that was coming. In fact, I, I thought it wasn't. I predicted that the invasion wasn't going to happen. I was wrong about that. But we co- we covered this. But I agree the cover up. But I'm on Twitter and on social media. And in the past, when I covered this and did the various stories on it, eh, it didn't get much. But now I, I, I see on Facebook today, you know, like today I was looking at there was one of these, you know, I stand with Ukraine and we've got to donate to Ukraine from truthout.org or something. Right. When I went down the comments, I saw, wow, what about the Azovs, the far right? I'm seeing more and more. I think that as this unfolds, that this cover-up is not going to be as successful in the long term as they would like it to be. And this is really going to be a nasty smear. I'm not going to call it a smear. Let's do this. It's going to expose the United States for supporting these people. And there will be questions asked. In the short run, they may seem to be getting away with it, but it's opening bit by bit. And this is a nasty thing because after this happens, there will be... Um, uh, uh, witnesses to the crimes that these people are, they're doing Nazi things even right now um, th- throughout the course of this uh, of, of, of this war. Anyway, your thoughts on, on that? Uh, well, I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, eventually they, they will fail because you just, you just can't keep the truth buried for so long. But the, um, uh, you know, it's just this, this, this completely outrageous. You remember back in 2017, there was the, there was the Unite the Right. Yes, uh, the Charlottesville. Charlotte, Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. Uh, Biden ran on yeah. that. Yes, Biden ran on that. In fact, that rally is why, is why Biden said he felt moved to, to run for president. And he, of course, singled out uh, um, uh, Donald Trump's outrageous comment that there were good people on both sides. Oh, remember that? Remember yes. when Trump said that? There was an there was an uproar, but Trump was was essentially def, you know putting leftists and Nazis in the same in the same boat, saying they were both good folks. Um, but how is that any different 
then then the Democratic Party, uh, you know, engaging in a massive cover-up of the of the Nazi role in the Ukraine. I mean, Mariupol, the heroic defenders of Mariupol, that defense is being led by the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. So are we expected to cheer on, you know, a couple of thousand, you know, neo-Nazis who are holding, you know, holding out against the Russians? Are we supposed to cheer them on? I mean, what next? Should we, should we, should we cheer on against the... Uh, against uh, Nazi soldiers who were holding it against, against the Soviets in Berlin in, in April 1945? Uh, I mean, where is this going? This is such a lie. Uh, it's out, I am just beside myself, as you can tell. I am very, very, very upset with it. Here's what I think, Dan. I mean, I take it personal. I'm a black person. You're Jewish. If we were walking down the street in Mariupol or one of these places where there's places where the Azov battalions are and they they looked at us, they would literally get in a fight amongst themselves to see to or in a, in a big argument oh who over whoever who got to shoot the black guy and the Jewish guy first. They would they, they would be a big probably they'd be a gunfight. No, I want the black guy. I want the Jew and they they you know be rolling around fighting, but we wouldn't last long. And my government would be the guys who bought the bullets with my tax dollars would buy the bullets that they would happily mow me down with after they'd beaten and tortured us both first, probably. Because that's you got to do that if you're a Nazi. Yes. And, 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 and in point of fact, Nazis from all over the world are now screaming to the Ukraine to join the to join the fight. They're receiving, you know, you know, uh, um, military training. They're being taught how to use the most advanced weaponry, you know, and what happens when they go home? <laughs> I'll tell you what happens.